This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. Last episode, we finished what is known as the Ark Narrative. The Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and it literally plagued them for seven months. So they decided to just send it on back. The process was a little comical and it included a gift of gold rats and tumors. The Israelites received the Ark improperly and in the process of mishandling it, 70 of them die. The people have learned a tough lesson from their Philistine defeat and returned to the Lord, ridding the nation of foreign gods. Then Samuel leads them in prayer and repentance until the Philistines interrupt with another attack. This time the Lord is for them and God defeats the Philistines with thunder so loud it throws them into panic. Okay, so we just finished chapters one through seven of 1 Samuel, and they were all about those first seven chapters, Samuel's story. In chapters eight through 14, we're going to discuss Saul's story as the first king of Israel. But before we zoom in on Saul, let's pull out and review where we've been in the history of Israel. So the nation of Israel began as a patriarchal family. First, Abraham was a leader, then Isaac, then Jacob. Then remember, the family grew so large that it was divided into 12 tribes. The 12 sons of Jacob were the tribe leaders for each tribe, but they were still very much related to each other and worked together, these 12 tribes. Of course, it helps that for most of this time, they were traveling around the wilderness together because the family that camps together stays together. But the tribes grew large over time. And then in the book of Joshua, they really spread out as they settled in the promised land and they started growing apart. By the time we got to the book of Judges, they had started fighting with each other, the 12 tribes. And during that story in the book of Judges, over and over we heard the phrase, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So they're kind of looking forward to this king that's going to pull them all together. Now, the people had a priesthood, but in their minds, what they didn't have was a ruler, a king like all the other nations. The fact was that they did have a ruler, a king greater than all the other nations and kings and false gods on the earth. They had the king of kings, the invisible God, and they were rejecting him in their desire for a human ruler. So scene one, Israel demands a king, chapter eight. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Okay, this made me so sad for Samuel because I like Samuel. Um, But here we go again with wicked or just not good straight sons. Samuel is not indicated or blamed for his son's wickedness as Eli was. However, they just don't follow Samuel's ways. And Israel is quick 
to recognize it and they want nothing to do with them. Now, the Israelites were justified in their request for new leadership because the inherited succession was not proving effective for the future of Israel. However, instead of praying for their leadership and seeking God's counsel, the Israelites turned to what they saw and liked from other cultures. And this was the real problem. Their desire for a king was motivated by sin. They wanted to be like everyone else. The irony is that while the Israelites resisted hereditary leadership through Samuel and his sons, they were asking for a monarchy like the other nations who passed down the kingship from son to son. They were hereditary. So they want to step away from something that actually they want to step towards again. They don't make sense. Now, until now, Israel has been a theocracy. That means God governed them through appointed leaders called judges and priests. They want to transition Israel from a theocracy to a monarchy. They don't want to be ruled by God, but by man. This is not to say that God was opposed to kingship. So when when we hear that Samuel didn't want this and God didn't want this, doesn't mean he's opposed to kingship. God had a plan from the beginning for a king because he mentions kings to come throughout the Old Testament. In fact, way back in Genesis 17, when he confirmed his covenant with Abraham, God said, I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. But God's plan was for a king who would rule under him, not a king like every other nation. God gave Moses that plan for a king in Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold when he takes the throne of his kingdom. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and those decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. God's requirements were super clear here. First, God has to choose the king and he must be an Israelite. He must not require many horses or return to Egypt. He must not take many wives or have a lot of silver and gold. He must write a copy of the law, read it daily and learn to revere God. And he must keep the law and remain humble. And as we go through all the kings throughout first Kings, second Kings, remember these because all of them fall short in one way or another. So will there ever be a human king to fulfill such requirements? Well, we all know he is to come. <laughs> eventually he is to come. Continuing, though, in this story in verse six. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. 
It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. I love that God talks to Samuel like this because Samuel was not pleased with their request because it was a slight to him and it was a slight to the God that he loves. They were rejecting Samuel as the God-appointed judge ruling over them. But Samuel was old. His sons were corrupt. So where then was the plan for the future? So I get both sides. The Israelites are like, we don't want your son. They're not wrong. But, and and the people wanted to know the plan now, and it wasn't apparent. And they also weren't saying that they didn't want God. They just didn't want his sons. Correct. But they could have waited on God. And that's where they were kind of saying, we want what we want and we want it now. And we think we have a great idea. God responds to Samuel similarly to the way he responded to Moses when Moses used to get frustrated. The people haven't changed since Moses's time. They still reject God by rejecting his leaders. And there were so many times when they rejected Moses and what he said. Despite the sin motive of their demand for a king, and it was a sinful request, God had a plan for them to have a king. Many kings, in fact, imperfect kings that would show them and set up the need for more than an earthly king, the need for a savior. But God wanted them to know before he fulfilled their desire and transitioned them to a monarchy, all the dangers of the kind of king they wanted, one like all the other nations. And Samuel's going to lay it out to them. Verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them, give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Samuel warns the people what a king will do. Take, 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 and take from them until they are once again slaves. But the people repeat emphatically that they want what they want despite the prophetic consequences. And they want a king. And here we learn of a secondary motivation to their main motivation of being like every other nation. There may have been a strong motivation of fear. They say they need a king to go out before them and fight their battles. 
Of course, this seems like a silly request when over and over and over, the Lord has miraculously won battles for them. But the invisible God was not enough to allay their fears when faced with these Philistines. And they think they know a better way, the security of a king they can see. Similarly, Adam and Eve thought they knew better when they took the fruit. As Adam and Eve followed the serpent, the Israelites were like sheep following other cultures off a cliff. And we often do the same. One commentator, Bill Arnold, said this, In our clearest and most honest moments, we all too often seek the security by conforming to the spirit of the times. Rather than serving in the world as God's counterculture, as we were created to do, like Israel, we tend to forfeit the lordship of God in order to become like all nations. We become like all the other sheep and we follow our culture off a cliff. Arnold goes on to cite the German Christians of World War II as a tragic example of how some Christians accepted and even joined the culture blinded to the truth of their tolerance. Of course, there's always some, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who clearly see the truth and courageously refuse to join the herd. And he's an encouragement to us not to join the herd of our culture. I think there's another element at play here because this is shortly after the Philistines defeated them and it was a very difficult defeat and then they captured the ark, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of like, we're scared. We know that a king might have done a better job, but they never recognized the part that they played or didn't play in that. And I think that's an observation and also a danger that we can fall into too, not recognizing that some of these things might be consequences of our own actions. And instead we're asking for something else, but really we just need to turn from our ways and turn back to the Lord. That's why I love this part of the Bible, this history section, because we can learn from their stories. If only we will open our eyes. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't open their eyes. They just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. All right. Scene two, Saul chases donkeys and Israel chases a king. Now, re- remember that one story we had way back when with the talking donkeys. So whenever I see whenever I, whenever I see donkeys, I'm getting right all ready for a chuckle and we're not going to be disappointed here. So God gives the people what they want, a king. Unfortunately, this king will be a hard lesson for them. Because they wanted a king like all the other kings, that's what they got. A tall, good-looking king who stands out in a crowd, like a shepherd among sheep, but not a good one. Chapter 9. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Pekrath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as he could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. All right, a little bit about Saul. He, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul's father had a lengthy genealogy and therefore is a man of standing, implying wealth. Saul himself has everything a politician could want, wealth, height, and good looks. Saul is also everything the Israelites could want, a people's choice candidate for sure. 
but he wasn't chosen by the people, but by God to teach them a lesson. God begins the scene by sending Saul via his father on a wild donkey chase that ultimately leads Saul to Samuel. At the same time, God prepares Samuel for what is really going to happen. Verse three, now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Sha'alim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, look, in this town, there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, if we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come on, let's go to the seer because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come on, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water. And they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. Okay, so don't confuse all the seer stuff. It's a prophet, kind of a similar thing. All right, Israel has been chasing after a king for years. Ironically, the king that they have been waiting for has been doing some chasing of his own. He has been chasing donkeys for days. To be fair back then, donkeys were valuable and the land was not fenced, so it would be normal to lose a few. But it's still a humorous picture and would have been a good comic for a newspaper at the time. Israel foolishly chasing after their idea of a king and their future king roaming the countryside and mindlessly chasing donkeys. Whatever God's intention in using donkeys to bring Saul to Samuel, we will never know. But in my mind, God is a sense of humor and was entertaining the heavenly host with a good laugh. On the more serious side, some commentaries suggest that the donkey is a symbol of humility, hence Jesus's preferred choice of transport, and that the donkey was a contrast to the lack of humility that Saul would have as a king. Now, humility is a character quality that God wants in his choice of king, as we will see with king number two, David, but it's, it's, it's not going to be found in Saul, heads up. Another missing character quality in Saul is faithfulness. Saul does not even know of Samuel. Now, Samuel was the political leader of this theocracy and the spiritual leader. Saul's servant even knew of Samuel, but Saul was totally ignorant. He calls him a seer. If Saul had been worshiping and making the required annual trip to make sacrifices, surely he would have been familiar with Samuel and a lot more familiar with God's word, as we will find out. 
Scene three, Samuel makes the call to a disconcerted Saul. Verse 14, they went up to the town and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. The Hebrew word used here for ruler is Najid, and it is thought to imply commander of an army. God's choice of the word Najid rather than the common word for king, Malek, implies that God is limiting Saul's kingship, perhaps because there is but one true Malek of Israel, and that is God. Verse 18, Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. For the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not you and your whole family line? Saul answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? All right. I kind of feel bad for Saul at this point because I have sons. And if you have sons, you would too. Imagine the scene. Saul has been roaming the country, looking for his dad's donkeys, camping out with his servant, tired and frustrated. One commentator describes Saul at this point as an unassuming youth. And that is how I picture him. Not a kid, but not quite fully baked in the brain either. He was able to handle a lot if he had to, but he's still under his father's direction. So he didn't have to yet. As I said, he's out roaming around, just doing what he's been told to do, not really thinking much about beyond the task, and certainly not looking to climb any social or political ladders. At this point in his journey, he's tired. He's hungry. He's ready to go home and sleep in his own bed because the donkeys weren't worth this much trouble to him or his father. He suggested as much 20 verses ago when he told the servant in verse five, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about these donkeys and start worrying about us. They're so rich that his dad by this time is more worried about his son. Now God's providence overruled and Saul and his servant push on to arrive at the unknown seer's house. In Saul's mind, this is the last stop on the donkey search. After this, he's going home if they don't find him. So imagine his bewilderment when, without any small talk at all, Samuel mysteriously tells Saul to go to a high place where he is to be treated as an honored guest at a large dinner party. On top of that, he's told not to worry about the donkeys because we got them. Then Samuel lets Saul know that he will tell Saul what is in Saul's heart. In other words, this is not about the donkeys, buddy. We have plans for you. And prepare yourself, because the desire of all Israel is now focused on you, unassuming youth. You, Saul, son of the itty-bitty tribe of Benjamin, are being called by God to be king. Saul, understandably, resists. 
What unassuming youth wouldn't? (laughs) He was from a small tribe, a tribe that almost became extinct at the end of Judges. He did not have one real credential to lead a tribe-divided nation. He was a frustrated and exhausted donkey herder. Certainly, Samuel must have the wrong guy. Verse 22, then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. Samuel spends the night talking to Saul on the roof. There was much to explain, much convincing to do, and I am sure the beginning of much teaching about the ways of God and the expectations for the job. The installation of a king would have been the biggest change to the nation of Israel since Moses laid out the covenant and the book of the law. The change was fraught with uncertainty. It carried the risk of oppression. Remember that take, take, take (laughs) section from which the Israelites had waited 400 years to escape Egypt. They didn't want to go back to that take, take, take kind of king. Israel would now be ruled by kings not the high priest, no longer aided by judges. There would be a monarch like all the other nations. But could this monarch be different from the other kings? Would he lead the people to worship God? Would he be faithful to God's laws? Scene four, Israel finally gets their king. Verse 26, they rose about daybreak and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, get ready and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go ahead of us. And the servant did so, but you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. Chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. 
I surely will come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. At daybreak, Samuel tells Saul he has a message from God for him. This will be Samuel's longest recorded speech to an individual. The weight of it all was probably really heavy to Samuel. Samuel had lived his entire life starting as a toddler devoted to the Lord. Remember, his mother Hannah had dedicated him to God, and he had been faithful to God's word and laws as given by Moses. Overseeing this national change, reordering the nation from a theocracy to a monarchy would have been heavy upon Samuel's heart and mind. It would feel like he was treading on Moses's toes, changing the laws, but for the fact that God was directing him. And on top of all that, Samuel was handing over control of the nation to a man, no, a youth who barely knew anything about God. Samuel's message began with an anointing. This was the first change in the rules. Before this day, anointing was for sacred objects in the tabernacle and the priests from the line of Aaron. For more on that, you can listen to our podcast from season three in Leviticus episode five. Samuel was positioning the new monarchy as a divine institution by anointing Saul. Then Samuel gave Saul three prophecies to build his confidence on his way home. First, Saul will meet two men near Rachel's tomb who will inform him that his lost donkeys have been found. Now, the reference to Rachel's tomb is significant because Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife who died while giving birth to Benjamin, the patriarch of Saul's tribe. So this would have been meaningful to Saul. These are things to bolster Saul's confidence. Second, Saul will meet with three men near Tabor who will offer him bread. Third, Saul will meet a group of prophets at Gibeah, and Saul will be overcome by the Spirit of God and join them in prophesying, transforming him into a different person. When this occurs, Saul, that unassuming youth, will disappear to be replaced by Israel's first anointed king. The reference to Gibeah was significant because it was where the Benjaminites raped and killed a Levite's concubine. The other tribes retaliated against the Benjaminites who were almost entirely wiped out. That was Judges 19, season 7, episode 11. Perhaps the choice of Saul the Benjaminite was part of their restoration. Samuel's last instruction to Saul is that he is to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel for seven days. Then Samuel will tell Saul what to do. In other words, yes, you are the king everyone has awaited for. However, you are not a king like the other nations have. Israel's king must wait for instructions from Israel's God and king. Up until this point, Saul's kingship has been a secret. In the next episode, the king that all of Israel awaits will be publicly announced. What will the people expect? What will God expect? What will Saul do? What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. 
New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.